We pick up our study in Exodus in chapter 15, and this chapter is a, has a significant transition, so let's just cover where we're at and where we're going. We started, if you remember, in Exodus with God choosing Moses as his man to lead the Israelites, and then God spent the first 80 years of Moses' life preparing him for this task, and then when the time came, God brought the 10 plagues upon the Egyptians through Moses, and they concluded with Pharaoh thrusting the Israelites out of their country, and after the death of all their firstborn sons and animals, God's continuing to use Moses as the Israelites have left Egypt behind and moved towards the promised land that God had previously covenanted with Abraham. But Pharaoh and the Egyptians come to regret their decision to let the Israelites leave Egypt, so they decide to go and bring them back. And God has led the Israelites up to the shore of the Red Sea, most probably the Nueva Beach at the Gulf of Aqaba, as we studied last week. And think of the situation. Only God could have done this spectacular situation. The Israelites are there, trapped between an army coming after them and a sea on the other side. No escape. And then God performs one of the greatest miracles in all of the Bible. As God commands Moses, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it. None of us have ever been given a command like that. Do that. It's just an incredible, incredible thing that God did. And the people of Israel go through on dry ground. The unbelievable happens as the Israelites are delivered from death through the middle of the sea and the Egyptian army is delivered into death in the middle of the sea. And the first 14 chapters of Exodus come to the end with the Israelites seeing the Egyptian army dead on the seashore. In chapter 15, the Israelites celebrate God's great strength, his deliverance, his love towards them. But there's a real transition that happens. For many generations, the Israelites have been slaves. They've been told what to do. They were not given the privilege of self-governance. And now all of a sudden, this enemy is no longer chasing them. And they must learn to become an independent, functioning nation. And God teaches the Israelites through a series of of five crises. The first crisis is here at the end of chapter 15 and it concerns that of thirst. Chapter 16 is centered on a crisis of hunger and how God will provide food for them. First part of chapter 17 returns to a crisis of thirst again. The second half of chapter 17 is a crisis of war. The fifth crisis is in chapter 18, and he deals with the leadership being overworked, and God sets up the authority structure for the country. And after these five crises dealing with water, food, war, and leadership, they come to the time in chapter 19 when the Israelites will meet directly with God. So for today, in chapter 15, we're going to divide this chapter into two parts. The first is the praise of God and the provision of God. The praise of God and the provision of God. So with that, let's start with the word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for what you did for the Israelites. You are worthy of all praise and adoration. And we want to do that today to express our love to you for your care for the Israelites. And in the same way you care for us each day. You, you don't grow weary of caring for us. And thank you for what you have provided for us, and you are worthy of all praise, and we want to do that to, to adore you today. 
Come and meet with us today as we open your word. In Christ's name, amen. So let's read the first 21 verses of chapter 15. And I'm going to call these, The Praise of God. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang the song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast in the sea. His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrew your adversaries. You sent out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the water piles up. The flood stood up in a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples heard. They trembled. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as stone. To your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in, on your holy mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. These first 18 verses of, of Exodus chapter 15 are considered the first hymn in the Bible and is considered one of the finest examples of Hebrew poetry. Now when I was young and in school, the subject that was most difficult to me was English and as soon as poetry was men mentioned, I was immediately lost. <clears throat> Probably why I'm an engineer. <laughs> and today it seems like it still takes me a lot of work to make up a simple roses or red, violets or blue poem and get any of the words to rhyme. But don't let my struggles discourage you because something clicked in my mind as I learned so much from studying this passage. I pray it will be for you also. We're going to take this hymn and divide it into an introduction and three stanzas. <clears throat> First one is the introduction. Verses two and three are stanza number one. Declaring what God is. What God is. Strength, song, and salvation. Verses 4 through 13 are stanza number 2. 
And they declare what God has done. Victory over past enemies. Deliverance of his people from Egypt. And verses 14 to 18 are stanza number 3. Declaring what God will do in the future. Victory over future enemies. And then it concludes with the spectacular ending in verse 18. The Lord will reign forever and ever. What God is, what he has done, and what he will do. And fortunately, Hebrew poetry is not like English poetry, which is based upon rhyming words and a repetitive meter. Hebrew poetry is based upon parallelism, and it starts with a simple thought being presented, and then it grows in parallel complexity, like going upstairs. It's repetition with a purpose. So we're going to look at the structure and the introduction here in verse 1. Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he's thrown in the sea. And the, breaking this down, the key word here is he has. He has. Repeated twice. He has triumphed gloriously. He has thrown into the sea. Now let's take... <clears throat> One aspect of the repetitive um, repetition with a purpose. And let's look at the growing complexity. So verse 1, this is an example. We're going to take one example throughout this passage here. Verse 1 ends with, the horse and the rider he's thrown into the sea. Follow that thought of God throwing the horse and the rider in the sea. Look at verse 4. His host he cast into the sea. And then there are more specifics added to this. His chosen officers sank in the Red Sea. Look at verse 5. They went down into the depths like a stone. And then in verse 10, more description is added. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. And then in verse 12, the earth swallowed them up. It's repetition with a purpose. A simple thought with more details added in a repetitive uh, going up the stairs description of what is happening. And that, that's really what clicked in my mind. It starts with simple and it's re repetitive with more increasing description. And these are a wonderful play on words as complexity is added to describe what happened. <clears throat> so look at stanza one in verses 2 and 3, which declare what God is. Verse 2 is a play on God's name in four parts. It is the Lord. It is He. It is my God. It is my Father's God. God is named in four different ways. And each time God is named, there's a corresponding statement about us that goes deeper. Is my strength and song become my salvation I will praise him. I will exalt him. And that's just so exciting there. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will exalt him. My Father's God. I will praise him and I will exalt him. This verse starts with the Lord being my song and ends with I will exalt him. This is not simply repetition without purpose, but repetition from the simple Growing to the complex. Verse 3 brings out, The Lord is a man of war. 
The Lord is his name. Not only is our Lord a God of love, but he is holy and against evil. He is against sin and just as God destroyed the Egyptian army. And he continues to be very capable of destroying the wicked. And we move from the declaration of what God is to what he has done in verses 4 through 13. Verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and the hosts he cast in the sea. His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. Starts with Pharaoh and his hosts and drills down to his chosen officers. They were cast in the sea. And then the sea is improved by specifically calling out the Red Sea. Verse 5 adds more color as it moves from the floods covering them to they went down to the depths like a stone. Verse 6 is a similar pattern as it contrasts the greatness of God to the destruction of the enemy. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In verses 7 and 8, the imagery grows and develops as the picture is expanded. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrew your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. Verses 9 and 10 contain another contrast between God and the enemy. The enemy said, what did the enemy say? What did the enemy say there? I will, I will, I will, I will, four times. I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide. The spoil, my desire shall have its fill, I will draw my sword. Remember what Pharaoh's plans are. We're going to come back to this later in the second half. Pharaoh said, I will four times. <clears throat> what did God do in response to the enemy's threats? <sighs> he blew. The wind, the sea covered them, and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Stanza 2 is concluded in verses 11, 12, and 13 with the glorious declaration of the great deeds God has done. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. And then verse 13 takes another stair step with an increasing description as a repetitive three-part phrase. Three, three phrases repeated twice. <clears throat> you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you redeemed. You guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Are we intimidated by God's enemies? Jehovah isn't. He has led by his steadfast love the people he's redeemed. He's guided them by his strength to his holy abode. In Christ, we may have peace in this world. In this world, we will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Christ has overcome the world. And then in stanza 3, verses 14 to 18, God declares what he will do in the future. Verse 14, the peoples heard, they trembled. Pang seeds the inhabitants of the Philistia. We start with people in general and then move towards Philistia and we learn how far God's reputation went in the story in Joshua. In Joshua 2 verse 10, when the spies were in Jericho, Rahab told the spies at Jericho, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water at the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. 
Verse 15 moves into singling out specific nations. Three of them are named, Edom, Moab, and Canaan. And then the responses grow in severity from dismay to trembling and end with being melted away. Verse 16, terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of God's arm. The enemy had an entire army ready for action, but they sat still as stone because of God's greatness. And verse 17, God has a plan for his people to bring them to his promised land, to a place of worship. God's plan was not made up as it went along. God has a specific plan. And he has gone before us to prepare a place for us to live with him. And we come to the spectacular ending in verse 18. The Lord will reign forever and ever. This is a marvelous hymn. But the important part of it is the celebration of God's great salvation and God's redemption of his people. This song retells how great was their redemption and the deliverance from slavery and how mighty our future worship will be. All of God's children have been delivered from the bondage of this world by the blood of God's Lamb. This picture of Pharaoh and Egypt's army coming after Israel is a picture of the world coming after God's children today. The world would seek to enslave God's children and to intimidate us, but we are to celebrate the power of God. The same God who defeated Pharaoh's mighty army is the same God who redeems us from destruction and is worthy of all of our praise. There is not a single circumstance that we face that has God worried because he reigns forever and ever. And Moses and Israel looked forward to what the Messiah would do. For us, we look backwards and see what our Savior, the Lord Jesus, did complete for us. And it was his death and resurrection that has conquered the world. And he will reign forever and ever. Verse 19 concludes with the postlude of a contrast of defeat and deliverance. And then in verses 20 and 21, the people's response to sing this song and to praise the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. God's praise is worthy to ring out for all eternity. And God's children have been delivered from the power of the world and transferred into the kingdom of God's dear song. And this song of God's redemption that all of God's children can sing and celebrate this song of Moses in Exodus 15 should encourage us to worship and praise our Lord as we remember our Lord's triumphs over his enemies here in Exodus 15. There's another chapter 15 in the Bible that also has an important song. If you would please turn to Revelation 15 verse 2. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the lamb, song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Mighty, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The Israelites there on the east side of that Red Sea 
saying the song of Moses by the Red Sea. This will also be sung as the song of the Lamb beside a sea of glass. In praise to our Lord. They sang the song of Moses, Exodus 15, which God tells us is also the song of the Lamb. What is that song? It is a song of thanksgiving and praise to our Lord, to our God, for the purpose of celebrating God's deliverance and God's redemption. Israel was redeemed from slavery to these Egyptians. In a similar way, God's children have been redeemed from slavery to sin and the penalty of our sin. The times we spend today singing praises to our Lord are very sweet, but there's coming a time when we stand before our Lord without sin and we will be able to worship him in the beauty of holiness and sing with the angels to our Lord who is worthy of all worship. The first hymn in the Bible is one of praise to the Lord and so also the last hymn in the Bible is a song of praise to our God. There's a future scene presented to us by the sea of glass that was portrayed there in a small sense by the Red Sea. As the Israelites are freed from slavery and watched as God brought judgment upon their enemies through one of the greatest miracles in all the world's history. And they followed up that event with worship to the Lord in the same way we celebrate our risen Lord and the victory we have over sin with worship to our Lord. The righteous will be vindicated and the wicked will experience the wrath of God and God will bless his people. This world that seems so wicked and strong at times is nothing before the power of God. God's kingdom reigns forever and ever. There is no end to the kingdom of God. And because of that fact, God's people will have no end to praising and worshiping him. For the Israelites, they rejoiced and praised God for his glorious deliverance on that day. So we'll move on now from the praise of God to the provision of God here in verses 22 through 27. And let's read these together. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and he went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water because Marah, of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statue and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they camped there by the water. How long will the Lord reign? He will reign forever and ever. Apparently, forever and ever is exactly three days. So after God's victory with the enemy and this tremendous miracle by the Lord, the celebration of praise that will ring for eternity the Israelites move on from the Red Sea and start heading towards the Promised Land. Three days later, water supplies are running low, and the water they find for their replenishment is bitter and not fit to drink. 
Apparently the Lord only reigns for three days. So what do they do to correct this difficulty? The people grumble against Moses saying, What shall we drink? Where is the prayer? These Israelites are standing before the man that God used to bring them up to this point. Who had lifted his staff and parted the Red Sea. He was instrumental in the ten plagues. And the people just finished celebrating God's great power over the enemy of the Egyptian army. Then they meet their next enemy, thirst and bitter water. Where is the gratitude and the humble praying to God to meet their needs? First, we're going to look at the situation they're in, the problem, and then we'll conclude and bring in some really solid biblical answers to this thing of contentment that we know all, all about too well. And contentment is so unnatural for us, and complaining is so natural. In fact, it made the top ten list, thou shalt not covet. And we're better, they were coveting a better situation than what they were currently enduring. And we don't need any classes to teach us to grumble because it's our nature to deflect frustration that we have with our situations onto something else. Now there's a super important detail here in the scripture that's repeated over and over that we should track on. And it has to do with this world grumble or murmur. Every time it's used, there's a second word that shows up after it. It's always followed by another word. And it's the word against. When we grumble, it must be against someone or something else. Here it was against Moses. And Moses' response is really exciting. He doesn't say that Moses grumbled back against the people or against God. Moses had the same waters of people, and he was content to leave this problem with the Lord. Look at Moses in these many situations, and Moses shows us that it is impossible to live a contented life. It is possible, even when the pressures of life get very difficult. And Moses has shown us that we don't have to live this way. There's another detail about this topic that we see in the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10.9. It says, We must not put God to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now these things happen to them as an example, and they are written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. These things happened to Israel here in Exodus for our benefit. And sometimes we see ourselves in these Israelites, both in the highs and the lows, and how fast they can swing between them. But then we may say to ourselves, I don't know that I'm as flaky as those Israelites. Keep reading in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has taken you but that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted upon your ability. But will with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. It is possible to flee idolatry from the power of God. Now look at the idolatry of the first grumbler in creation, which wasn't Adam or Eve, look at Isaiah chapter 14, and we will see where Pharaoh got his ideas. 
as we see the fall of Satan from heaven. In Isaiah 14, verse 13. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will set up my throne on high. I will set on the mountain of the assembly. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And that sounds like a lot similar to what Pharaoh said in Exodus 15. And we know how that story ended with Pharaoh. Even though Satan was given this high and lofty position in heaven, he replied, I want more. I am not happy. I will be like God. The only thing that will make me happy is to have the power of God. And in saying those things, Satan demonstrated for us the sin of pride. I am not happy with the way God made me and what he provided. I want something better than what God provided. I want more control of my life. I want to be the God in my life. Look at Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. They lived in the perfect environment of the Garden of Eden. And Satan questioned God before Eve there. Adam and Eve became the first grumblers of the human race. When we think we deserve better than we have. Remember, they lived in perfection without sin. And then another detail is that grumbling is a pointless sin. Two questions for you. First question. What does grumbling change? Second question. What does prayer change? If we find ourselves in a difficult situation like the Israelites, who did they grumble against? Moses and God. Who was the only person that could change their situation? The person they grumbled against. God. So when we grumble against God, and he is the only one that can meet our needs, it is a real mercy of the Lord each day that we are not consumed. It's been said that when we complain about something that we can change and we fail to act, we play the part of the fool. On the other hand, when we complain about something that we cannot change, then we're calling God a fool for what he allowed into our lives. And there's another story that uses this word mara that we should bring out. And this story is about two widows in the book of Ruth. Two women, both of them lost their husbands. And these two widows traveled and returned to the city of Bethlehem. The older one said, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty hath dealt bitterly with me. The other widow, Ruth, said, I want your God to be my God. I want your God to lead my life, and I want to live for him. What a contrasting response to similar situations. Naomi became bitter, called me Mara, through her difficulties, and Ruth trusted God. And the Apostle Paul was writing to a church that did a lot of comparisons. They compared their preachers, they compared their possessions, they compared their education, and they were a very proud people. And Paul wrote to them in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you received it, then why do you boast as if you did not receive it? What do you have that you did not receive? It is God that has made each of us. It is God that's given us the ability to drink water, to taste the bitterness, the sweetness of water. 
This God has given us a mouth to speak, either praise or grumbling. And Paul reminds this church at Corinth, don't be full of yourself. Enjoy everything we have as a gift from God. <clears throat> so the question is, do fewer problems or more possessions lead to happiness? Adam and Eve lived in the perfect environment. They had the perfect marriage. They didn't get old. They didn't get tired. Adam was the best looking husband ever. Eve was the perfect wife. Everything had been freely given them to God, yet they were, became discontent and unhappy in this perfect situation. Solving our problems doesn't bring contentment as demonstrated by Adam and Eve because they didn't have any problems. How do we respond? How do we respond to difficulties? First, a very simple, yet it's a difficult command from God. In Romans chapter 5. Let's pick up Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access to faith and to this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. And that's really the command there. We rejoice in our sufferings. And he gives us the reason. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Who has been given to us. Did you catch the sequence? Sufferings produce endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame through the working of the Holy Spirit. Now take that working of the Holy Spirit. Because secondly, none of these solutions are possible without the fruits of the Spirit. In Galatians 5.2. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there are no law. God's provision Turn that bitter water into sweet water, sweet, delicious water for them that day. And God is able to produce hope from our sufferings. And thirdly, spend time with God. Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the, God of, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and minds in Christ Jesus. We need a guard for our minds, and that is the peace of God, coupled with thanksgiving to God in prayer about everything. <clears throat> and I would remind, remind you, each of us, to go review Brad's excellent New Year's sermon about filtering our thoughts. The bitterness that the Israelites experienced in the water at Mara was removed. How was that bitterness removed there in that water that day? God pointed to Moses and said, take that tree and throw it in the water. We also can have bitterness in our life. What do we do with that? Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, from the bitterness of the law by becoming a curse for us that it is written. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 
Just as the bitterness of the water at Merah was removed by a tree, so also the bitterness in our lives can be removed because our sin can be removed by Christ who hung on a tree. There at the waters at Merah, Jehovah made himself known as their physician. When the times of bitterness and trials were to come in the lives of the Israelites, God proved again that he was trustworthy, that he would guide and deliver them from every trial. After this test of bitter water, God promises to put on them none of the diseases that he put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. They move on from Mara and come to Elam, which is described as having plenty of water and shade trees. And what a wonderful way to end this chapter with the promise that God will care for them. What a tremendous chapter. What a tremendous God we worship and we praise that he, would, he is worthy of all our praise and worship. So let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for what you have done for these Israelites in the same way you are the same God who cares for us each day. Thank you for your mercy to us each day. And may we be filled with praise to you. In Christ's name, amen.